0: This is the Real Estate Investing for Freedom podcast, where we bring on the experts to teach you the golden nuggets of real estate investing so you can escape the rat race and start living life on your terms. Now, here's your host, Dalen Hazel.
1: Hey, everyone. Thank you for coming back to the Real Estate Investing for Freedom podcast. I really appreciate you showing up every week and listening to our newest episodes my guests and I work very hard to make these as action-packed and as actionable for you as possible. So thank you for subscribing as well on your favorite podcast listeners so that you don't miss another future episode. Today's show is with Charles Carrillo. He's with Harborside Partners. And we're talking about how to boost your cash flow with just a few little tweaks. There's some things, some tips and tricks you can implement in your business to increase your cash flow. Um, Imagine this. If you were able to increase your cash flow just $50 a month per unit, would you do that? If you have... 10 units, that's $500 a month. If you have 20, that's 1,000. If you have 100 units, that's $5,000 a month. And so start thinking of it that way. And how can I get as much cash flow as possible out of my units? So if you're a landlord or thinking about being a landlord in the future, make sure you listen to this episode throughout. And with all that being said, before I get to the show today, here is the golden nugget of the day. Today's golden nugget is show up in person for your sellers when at all possible. So for example, um, I, in my wholesaling business, I'm looking for off-market distressed property owners. It really helps if myself or someone on my team shows up in person for that appointment than just making an offer over the phone. You're still making the same offer, but when you are in person, um, you just have a higher chance of building that rapport, that trust, and you're not just someone at the other end of the phone line. So if you are starting off, this might need to be you. And you're going on appointments, you're setting them, you're um, looking at the house, you're taking notes, you're building that rapport. But that's going to result in a higher chance of you securing That property. And if you are making offers on on market properties, it may help if you tell the other agent, the selling agent, hey, you know, we're not just some sight unseen offer. We actually saw the house today and we'd love to make an offer on it. It's just a smoother conversation than if you're just some random person. They don't know if you even are local and you're just trying to make an offer on the phone. So, when at all possible, try to make it in person. I understand with COVID and also with more and more people getting into real estate investing virtually, that may be a little difficult, but I've seen it make a big impact on my chances of um, buying the property. So hopefully that helps you. And without further ado, this is today's episode with Charles Carillo talking about How to Increase Your Cash Flow with Just a Few Simple Tweaks. Welcome to the show, Charles. How are you doing today? Doing well. How are you? Fantastic. I'm very excited to have you on because in this episode, we're going to talk all about how to analyze rental properties and what to look for in a potential rental investment and also how to increase... You know, our properties net income, getting the most juice out of our properties that we can. So a lot is going to be discussed today. But first, before all that, can you kind of dive into your background and how you got started in real estate?
0: Yeah. So I grew up in a, uh, a family. My dad was a, has been a real estate investor in multifamily and commercial properties since the 80s. And uh, so when I grew up, uh, we are from a little town in Connecticut. And we my dad was investing in a city about 15 minutes away, 20 minutes away, where I still have properties today. But um, he, I would go everywhere with him, and he kind of uh, he didn't do any third party professional management. On it. He managed them all himself, and it was probably at one point like a hundred hundred units between commercial spots and between rental and multifamily, and he had superintendents, and he kind of had a whole system and team in place for doing it. But he was much more hands on. Than I ever wanted to be kind of with it, and um, so I he started selling that when I was in high school all of his properties. And when I got out of college uh, about 15 years ago, I purchased a, a three-family property, and now we call it house hacking, or it's called house hacking. It was we didn't have these cool names back then. It was just really hey, live on one floor and rent out the other two. And I actually rented out the other two and rented out another bedroom. Right, guy right out of college, and it was about a mile and a half from the college. I just graduated in Connecticut. And so I was able to, I rented that out and uh, it was great. I mean, cash flowed on it and it was was a great way of doing it. And uh, the property had a little bit more hair on it, I guess you would say, than I knew what I was doing when I got into it. My dad kind of mentored me, but from like an arm's length. So it was something that um, on my second property, uh, didn't make those mistakes. And I mean, every property you go through, uh, I mean, as, as you probably know, you have a list of what mistakes you made wrong, stuff you'll never do again. And that list was, uh, was pretty long on that first property. But, um, after that, uh, bought another three family, then bought, went, bought a small mixed use. Uh, so mixed use is, um, commercial and multifamily property. And then kind of went from there. And now in Florida since 2012, and we focused more on syndicating properties and um, really focusing on the Southeast and uh, parts of the Mid-South, right? So kind of the whole belt from uh, Texas all the way to uh, North, South Carolina and South.
1: Awesome. Thanks for sharing that. And House hacking is not really something we've talked on on the show yet. Because So can you briefly describe what is house hacking and how it really set you up for your career in real estate?
0: Yeah, house hacking is a great start. And I think it's really underutilized or undervalued by investors. Everybody says, you know, you have somebody comes on here and has uh, several hundred units and everybody, oh, I want to be that guy. And I want this and I want that. And uh, But the thing, though, is that for anybody that's listening here, I mean, um, and that's why we, we love multifamily is uh, that... Your housing is a huge chunk of most people's uh, net home, you know, net take home pay. And so, number one, you can utilize the government with a uh, like a three and a half percent down loan, and you can buy a property one to four units. Um, we would want to really go to three to four units so you can really maximize your cash flow, uh, live in one of the units. And I think it's for at least a year or two. Um, and then that will offset your other units you probably in this market where we are now you probably won't be really cash flowing much but if the majority of your expenses are taken care of like how i had it i I was like i think I, i was like making like 40 bucks a month right and um when I didn't rent out my bedroom, second bedroom, it was in my place. It was just like the other two floors. And then I would just move like three or $400 a month into my property account because you have, you know, when issues arise, right? New hot water heater, all that kind of stuff. And, um, so if you do that, you can really minimize your living expenses, which is great, allowing you to invest. It starts building your resume and. I mean, I'm a licensed real estate professional. I'm an agent. I've never really sold anything. I just do by referrals. But every time I speak to a broker that's in multifamily or in commercial properties, it's experience, right? And it's great that they always tell you and partner with someone else that has experience. Well, that's good. But it's even better that, hey, I have multifamily experience. I've managed this property. So you get to live for next to nothing. You learn how to be a landlord in the best way ever because it's downstairs, upstairs, or next door to you is where the problem is. right? So it's very easy. Like For instance, everybody's working at home or a lot of people are working from home. And that's how I was doing it. And handyman shows up, you let them into the unit, they do it. So it's very easy to manage being so close. And um, you really learn all the mistakes. You you make a ton of mistakes and you're going to learn exactly how to do it. So in a year or two from there, I mean, you can really set yourself up and now you have your resume built, you have an inexpensive place to live, you're actually a landlord, you're not just uh, you know, reading about it or listening about it. And I think that's an awesome way for people to start. And I think it's usually just like two years of W-2 income. I didn't even have W-2 income. I was self-employed at that time. So it was like tax returns and stuff, but um, it was, it was uh, pretty good. It's a great way of starting.
1: Yeah. And I just wanted to briefly touch on that because uh, I think a lot of people know what it is, but firsthand how it kind of catapulted you to where you're at today. It's a great foundation. Mm -hmm. Uh, People should utilize that if they can. But the thrust of our show today is, like I said, analyzing potential Mm -hmm. rental properties. So um, I want to dive into maybe some... uh, I don't want to get too into the weeds here, but some numbers that you initially look at. You know, The first thing that comes to my mind is like the 1% rule. And we'll talk Mm -hmm. about all these and gross rent multiplier cap rates. So can you dive into you know where you started out in maybe the smaller buildings, you know, single family to small multifamily? What were you primarily looking at to see, hey, this this potential investment is a great prospect for a buy and hold long-term cash flow? Cause that's what we're talking about today, yeah. is just the long-term buy and hold strategy. So what were those things you looked for?
0: Yeah, when we say like the long term, just so people know, I, I would consider that five plus years. Um, I would say you know you have people that are short term you know it doesn 't have to be like we 're going twenty five years, which i haven 't sold any of my properties that I own one hundred percent. The only properties that we have sold are in syndications because you have other partners and stuff but so it 's something that uh, if you holding it five plus years, I would consider that long term so just for this uh, so people know where I stand on what we 're doing but um typically, the number one is the market, and the market is very important for anybody, and like not just hey, I love um this city or I love this county it 's Get down like really granular and get like really into the weeds on it and know neighborhoods and know almost streets of what you like. Um, When I was buying in this town in Connecticut, um, I could get a picture of a property and I almost could pinpoint where it was in the town. And I knew which sides of the town I want to be on, which sides of streets I want to be on. I mean, you have, uh, you know, the whole town can be, you can separate out. Everybody's done it where they're driving down the street because every city has a place where you can't afford to live and where you don't want to live, right? And we're trying to rent kind of in that middle. So the thing is that this can change um, by... A, a highway, a highway that gets put in, it can change by a body of water, like a pond, like a, a brook. For a, I mean, it can it's just it can be a train track. I mean, anything. So you can be looking on Google Maps, and it can be very deceiving. Can be like, well, why is this renting for a thousand over here's renting for fifteen hundred? It's because it could be something that you don't even see near. Oh, that's train tracks right there. So it's a huge difference. So when you're picking these markets, drive the markets really understand where you'd want to live and keep that as something I would keep when I'm looking at properties. But if I'm buying in C-class properties, obviously it's not going to be something where you are going to be like, oh yeah, I'm definitely living there. But it's something where you're like, this is nice. Um, I want to drive through if you're looking for something because we're doing longer term holds, as you mentioned. So we're really looking for um, if you really want to get on a wave of gentrification, and what I'm saying there is if we're driving through a neighborhood, I want to see places that have been renovated that look nice. I want to see places that are dumps, and I want to see places with dumpsters out in front. And that means that you're in the wave of gentrification. Mm-hmm. It's a very aggressive strategy when you're like, oh, gentrification is happening here. I'm going to buy five blocks away or you know what i mean and you're like okay that's great for your 15 20 year holds if you're in a good market but it's very difficult if you're doing like a 3 to 5 so we couldn't do that with a syndication i could do it with my own money and maybe like a joint venture with a couple of partners but if i'm doing something i'm like hey i'm going to return money in 3 to 5 years i can't do that if i don't have that wave if you're not in in the wave you know what i mean um, yeah, so it's so, very
1: important we know what kind of time frame you're looking at because when I said long-term buy and hold I didn't mean you have to hold these properties for 30 years. I just yeah. I and, and thanks for clarifying the 5 year. So how can we get in on that gentrification and make sure we're actually riding that wave rather than getting in on the tail end or at the wrong time?
0: I would, uh, when the areas that you find that you like that are coming around, you're driving through them because this is going to be very important when you're talking to your broker. I mean, we haven't—I know—we're talking about analyzing deals, and we haven't even gotten to a deal yet. But when we're in a hot market like we are now, um, brokers, when they talk to you on the phone, they're going to nix you or check you off as fine within 30 seconds, right? And if you tell them. I want to buy multifamily. All right. Well, you've just been next. You know what I mean. If you say I want to buy five to fifteen units, I want to buy between Oak Street and Dwight Street. I want to buy, uh, be you know, I want to buy these units that are somewhere between C plus and B. Um, I don't mind putting in a few thousand dollars a unit. I have experience because I've house hacked before, so I'm a landlord. And I understand it, and I have my financing lined up. I mean, you go and you do that call. You're on a call. You're on a list, and you're going to get a personalized email when a deal comes up, not just hey, I put you on the whole, the, the MailChimp list and you're one of like 15,000 people um, that are getting this email. It's gonna be like, hey, I have something that just came up for you. You might wanna take a look at it and here's all the details. And that's what we really wanna get when we're getting deals off market. When you're looking for, like your question, the market exactly where you're going, um, when you're driving these areas, when you're looking at these areas, you wanna see places where, there's a few things we look for. We're gonna be like, so we're looking at a market as a whole. Okay, so number one, we wanna see... Um, we want to see an increase in medium household income, right? Maybe 2 or 3% a year. We want to see uh, over, and we're going to do it over like 10, 20 years. It doesn't have to be perfect, right? But just like from 20 years ago to now, right? Maybe 2% a year, something like this. We want to see an increase in home prices as well, um, probably the same amount. 2% a year, something like this. It'd probably be a little higher than that. Um, and we want to also see a decrease in crime. So as we have you know, a housing price like this, we want to see crime coming down like this. And it doesn't have to be perfect, um, but you can pull this stuff. You can literally Google it. And without even clicking on anything, it'll tell you. Um, and then, so you can find out the markets as a whole by doing that, right? Finding those three things and working off that. And then what we want to do is we're going to look at household. Now we're going to look at, okay, so average house is $250,000. Let's say we're looking at buying apartments, uh, say for 80 to 110,000. Now, when you're looking at that, that is a good ratio. And why I would say that is because let's just say, um, when you're buying there, you are, um, let's say it's average house is 210. We're buying units for 70,000. Okay. So that's what we're kind of shooting for. It's going to be very difficult. For a renter in a seventy thousand dollar unit to buy that house. So in multifamily, what we want is we want to minimize turnover. And when you say minimize turnover, it's not people leaving every twelve year, twelve months, and definitely not less than twelve months that really kills our cash flow. We want people staying there twenty four months plus. I mean, I have one tenant that I rented to when I was self managing in twenty ten that's still in one of my properties. Um, so the thing though is that when you have this, right, when you have this uh, inability right difficulty from leaving the unit right you can minimize your turnover and uh, that will increase our cash flow we don't want people where every year they're leaving like college, college housing is fine but there's a reason why college housing is more expensive obviously you know there might be more damage to the unit but we have lots of co-signers but also that person's i mean how many times do people really stay in a college apartment for more than 12 months i mean i never did when i lived in one so the thing is that they're working that into the uh, you know the make ready and getting ready for that unit. So those three things is what we're looking at when we find the market and then when you're driving the market that's where you're going to see um, when you're narrowing it down into the neighborhoods and that will really give you a fantastic target of what you want to do. So you start from a larger and you kind of you know you work your funnel down to the neighborhoods and the streets and really say, you know, I love this area. It's a great part of town. I love everything in here. And I would even push it a little further out. And that's something you could do like maybe with a house hack. And you say, wow, they're doing beautiful properties three blocks away. I'm going to do it in here. And you know, over the next 10 years, I you know, hope for it to come or I'll just buy in that area and pay a little bit more. Um, because usually when you pay a little bit more for property, it's worth it.
1: Yeah. So basically what I'm hearing, Charles, is that you're saying, you know, get the data, have your data. So you're getting that from things like Google, maybe a website. We've talked about the website, city/data, yep. city-data.com, data, city I think it was. And then you're getting that from agents, um, brokers, and then you're compiling that data to find the best areas of, uh, of town to invest in. And in preferably towns that are on the way up that are being gentrified that you can still get in at a good price point, but that are riding that wave up. Now, you also mentioned things to avoid. So maybe train tracks or, or so forth. So and I, I certainly agree with that. You know, if I see an area that's across from a bunch of you know rundown commercial buildings, and it's the only residential property on that yeah. street, that's not a good place to invest. So, what are some other examples of things that you avoid when you are looking at potential deals?
0: Um. So. I want to I want to buy in quiet streets that are close to commercial, and that could be a corner market. That could be a um, you know you want within say a half mile. There's not perfect sciences half mile or a mile. Have some large national tenants right? Target, um, a Starbucks, maybe Starbucks. These are Dunkin' Donuts. Any of these type of things um, that just shows because. Like they've done more research, right? Uh, Starbucks has more research than any of them, anybody listening to this podcast will ever have a research department for. Where they're pinpointing yes. out sites, they're investing for. They're going to sign a lease that's uh, a triple net lease that's fifteen, twenty, twenty five years long. So trust me, they know exactly where that's going, or they have a very good idea, and they're putting their money behind it. Um, and they need that thing to make money. So if you're seeing, oh, there's a Starbucks here, and then. You know, uh, over here as uh, close near as uh, where the property is or stuff like this, this is stuff that you want to be looking at. Uh, in these areas as well, is that we also want to make sure that when I was talking about all the uh, household income and stuff like that, you also want to see a consistent increase in jobs and increase in population. So it's gonna be another thing that you want to see, right? We don't want to be going to areas with decreasing, with decreasing population. So when we're narrowing down and um, when I'm using like train tracks or highways, I'm using that. Obviously, those aren't optimum things to live by, but it just shows how quickly. I mean, train track, I mean, 20 feet, 30 feet, right, with all the side on it. I mean, that can change the whole neighborhood. So it's very important that when you're buying next to these places that uh, you're aware of it because it's it's something that's really going to impact. Your property. And when you're, you know, that's about knowing the neighborhood because there's train tracks where there's no trains on, right? So uh, knowing that uh, what's going on there, knowing what the future is of that area. If you've never invested in an area, uh, go to the city hall, right? Go to the city hall and um, you go down there and talk and talk to people down there and see what's going on. Um, go to a meeting, right? And all these different things, see exactly what's happening in the area. Uh, drive around. They usually have these white and black signs that people put on there that says that there's a zoning ordinance or something that's coming up, see what people are doing. I mean, what's going on in this area? Is there money coming into it? Um, I mean, you can drive around and see, um, hey, this this property over here has been renovated. They just put a new roof on it or this over that. I mean, that's the stuff you want to see with money coming into the neighborhood. So buying an area that's quiet, um, I want to buy where there's enough parking. Um, I'd like to buy where there's separate metered uh, units. when I say that, definitely electricity. Um, Water is great too, especially if you're in a place with expensive water, but that's always something you can add on. But, um, so that's another thing that we're going to look for. So metered utilities, uh, metered water, definitely metered hot water. That's something that they're going to have their own hot water heater for. Um, even if it's a common cold water, uh, that's included with the apartment, um, so, those are the main things from the outset of what I want to see. I also want to see some mix of units where we're going to have more two bedrooms, um, sometimes three bedrooms. You have to know what's in the market, what's going to hit, because if we're in a very urban area, right? And we have a lot of young professionals coming in, maybe one ones are going to be a hit in that area, right? But if we're going into an area which is a little bit more family oriented, I mean, you start getting into two bedrooms. Um, but like three bedrooms, you know what I mean? These, these type of units, they might have a huge draw. I mean, I have when I have people that come into three-bedroom apartments, they stay for three plus years, right? We don't have that many. They're usually ones that I've, I own myself. But um, usually it's like two-bedroom two unit um, two bedroom apartments. I know in Tampa during COVID, I mean, our two-bedroom apartments 100% occupied? You know what I mean? Um, very difficult to find in our price point of where we are renting, that's fantastic, right? That's where you can edge that rent up a little bit. Um, and uh, you can really, and that just goes all to the bottom line.
1: Yeah. Great point. So what would you say to somebody who hears all this and is like, yeah, but I still want to, you know, I know my town. I'm just going to invest over here. I'm just going to buy over here. And someone who's not really, they're haphazardly thinking about this. Do you think it should keep somebody from taking action in, in Wanting to carry out all the things we've said, or should they? Should a beginner just go ahead and and buy in, in, in an area and learn the ropes? Should they be doing all this research up ahead of time? Should it keep them from taking action?
0: Um, I mean, I when when we're going to larger multifamily, when we say commercial multifamily, that's what I'm saying, like five plus units. And that's what's considered, you know, and that's where when you're buying that, you really have to know these sure. metrics to do it correctly. Um now when I initially bought my property, I definitely didn't do any of this stuff, right? So I'm not going to, you know, lie about that. I would like to know and have an idea of where I'm investing and have an idea of how long I want to keep it. I mean if I'm living in an area and it's fine. It's what we call like maybe a cash flow market. There's not much appreciation on it, but, um, the returns will look good when I rent it out. That's fine. I mean, that's a good first investment. Make sure it's not something that you're getting in over your head, get something that, uh, as we say, quote unquote, turnkey, which really isn't any way I like that, but find something that looks like it's been renovated because there's gonna be a lot of things that haven't been. So trust me, you'll have your work cut out for you on your first deal, but just get something that's going to, uh, that, that's fine. You don't have to pour a lot of money into it. Then that's something that you have to bring more money into it. You have to manage more stuff. The last thing that you want to do on your first purchase when you probably don't have your contractors and your handymen all set up like you will uh, five years down the road. And that's when you start doing that, what we call heavy lift uh, type deals. So it's um, that's that's kind of my thinking. Uh, you If you're living in an area, you have a job in an area, I mean, look in that area to buy. And it doesn't have to be like these hot markets that we're always investing in as syndicators, but these are the places where we're going to, uh, where we're going to be able to build value quickly and where we'll be able to sell the property or refinance it uh, in three to five years. And that's a different business model than someone that's going in the house hack that's, I mean, worst case scenario. Even if your house doesn't go up in value, if you're not, if you're paying half what you were going to pay before, and you're paying off your mortgage every month, you know what I mean? Um, it's a win-win. It's not, I mean, it's like you know, it's a, it's a single or a double. It's not a grand slam, but it's your first deal. You know what I mean? You're still making equity in the property, and uh, it's going to go up somehow, at least holding with inflation. So.
1: Exactly. So we've talked so far about the market data. And I want to turn our attention to once you have found the spot location Mm -hmm. neighborhood you're going to invest in, how do you analyze it further to maximize your returns? So what are some financial metrics that you look for to gather that information and really underwrite it to see if that's the, the right deal for you?
0: So when we're dealing, uh, if we're talking about like house hacking, then I'll talk about doing like larger properties. So with house hacking, it's a much simpler process. So you're gonna have, um, you'll have an idea from your uh, your broker, your mortgage broker, of what your insurance is gonna be, uh, or what your what your um, principal and interest is gonna be. Right? You should go out get a quote for insurance on that. Um, you should have an idea of what the water is. The problem is when you're buying properties on the smaller scale, people's records are terrible. So you're not gonna be able to get this from them. I mean, just getting leases from them at closing is gonna be a a pain, right? Or before closing, which is really how you should do it, but it's kind of like uh, (laughs) something you don't always get. And um, it's, so when we're looking at these properties and we're we're going through them, we wanna make sure that, uh, go through these numbers, know that our property taxes will go up You've gotten a quote for insurance, so you have an idea there, and then you have an idea of what your your final uh, your final net amount, right? Let's just say of expenses is going to be just for your main things: uh, principal, interest, taxes, insurance. So we have that. Now it's going through where what's the quality or condition of the property? If it was something that hey, this was just I'm buying this from a flipper, he just renovated the whole thing. Okay, so you probably you don't need you know I look through now roof furnaces, uh, heating and air, whatever it is, and hot water. Those are the main things that I'm going to look at, number one, and price that into what has to happen. Because the amount of reserves that you're going to need for that property will be dependent. If I go into a property, it's brand new furnaces, brand new hot water units, brand new roof, and the windows are in fine shape. I mean, that knocks off pretty much all these huge items. So when you're going into it, you're like, okay, I will put away like you know three or six months of this mortgage payment to the side just that if I need it for anything um, But if it's like okay now I'm going to do a hot water heater I'm gonna have to do that roof in two years these are things that you're going to have to actively plan for because honestly if that you, you're told that it takes two years to do that roof, uh, you know in two years you have left on the roof and in a year it starts leaking. Um, you don't want to be patching it where you could just pay for it, have it done and have it set for you know say 15 depending on where you're in the country. Uh, 30 years up north and probably down south 15 years. So,
1: yeah, good points. And uh, I know we're kind of talking about um, multiple things here. We're talking about house hacking, single family, multifamily. So, I know there's going to be different approaches to each type of asset class. But is there a common thread at like what you'd like to see as far as cash flow per unit, um, cash on cash
0: return? What are you looking for that are like the must haves for your deals? So, if I'm house hacking, I want to have two of those units. I want, I'm going to live in the worst unit, right? So, that's probably like the third floor and a third, a three family place. Um, and I want to make sure that that unit's going to vacate. You know what I mean? Maybe it's the second unit that vacates earlier and that's the one I'll move into. But, um, so I want to have two units paying almost all of my principal interest taxes and insurance, right? Um, if that's kind of, if that, pretty much mends together, like right there equal, then I'm like, okay, this is a pretty good property for me. Because the goal with house hacking is not having you paying that much money per month out of your pocket, a fraction of what you would if you're renting. So that's how I would do house hacking. Um, the other thing too, is that I'm also going to put my numbers together. What happens when I rent out my property? I'm not going to live there forever, right? Maybe uh, five, 10 years down the road, I find a house, I want to move in, get married, whatever it might be. Um, at that point, what am I going to rent that for, and then I can look back. Okay, now I'm going to make $800 a month minus expenses for this property once I rent it out. And like, oh, okay, great, that's fantastic. And rents will probably be higher when I move out anyway, so it'll be even more money. But so that's what I'm looking at with the house hacking. When I'm talking with, you know, we we if you're buying, say, a smaller multifamily property. So two to five, two to four units. Um, usually we use like what's called the one percent rule. I still use it into commercial, not really when I'm doing out formulas. Um, it's really something of just having an idea of how expensive something is. So, for instance, for example, you're buying a property for a hundred thousand dollars a unit. Um, you really want to see the rents at a thousand dollars a door, right? A thousand dollars a unit per month, and you've hit the one percent. I know some people say two percent, all this kind of stuff. I mean, when you're getting up higher than that, you're really getting into a lot of cash flow markets, which are fine. I want to find, with the metrics I spelt out earlier for finding a market, I want to have a mix of both appreciation and cash flow. Now, what do I look for in cash flow? If I'm buying a larger deal uh, with a syndication, we are doing a syndication, we're going to be looking for 7 to 8% cash on cash, which is kind of low. Uh, you know, even it goes to 9, it's even better over the lifetime of the deal. So if I'm saying we're going to keep this for five years, on average, I want to see 8% per year um, get paid out on cash on cash for that deal. Now, when I'm buying smaller multifamily, and you don't have to do this on your first one. I didn't do it on my first one, but now there's more hassle with smaller multifamily, smaller properties. I want to see an increased uh, cash on cash return for those properties. And that can be in like low double digits. And so you might say seven, eight, 9% on syndications. I want to see 10, 11, 12% on smaller multifamily because you also have to think that not just return on capital, return on cash, cash on cash, uh, return on your time as well. I mean, if you want to buy 20 units, and you're buying them all as five units, that's four insurance policies, that's for uh, bank accounts, it's all this different stuff, how it's going to be. It's a lot more hassle. So you have to work that into your return. And uh, that's what's very important when you're doing that. The other thing too is a huge thing is how are you going to manage it? Now in house hacking, if you are an aspiring landlord, I highly suggest that you manage it yourself. It would kind of be silly not to manage a house hack yourself. You're living there. Um, now down the road though, if you're buying and you're like down the road, you're buying them and stuff like this, and you want to put them out to management, you know, get yourself 10, 12 units plus, find a property manager that's going to work for you and uh, find out what their kind of what their numbers are and how their pricing is. Everybody's different, right? So I have one property manager that charges six um, percent, five hundred dollar minimum monthly, right? On smaller multifamily, um, we have ones that start at like 7 or 8%. And at 30 units or so, it goes down to seven, and then it goes down to six. So you have these thresholds of what you're looking at. And then just know, okay, when I hand it over to this person, where it's going to be more expensive up front. the thing with management is the more units you buy, the scale you have, the economies of scale, the lower that's going to go, everything's going to be easier. You're going to be hire more people. Maybe you hire someone yourself. Your manager through your property management company that takes care of it. You're going to have better contacts with third party contract services like a contractors. So um, you're not using uh, someone's uh, what I always call like yellow page pricing uh, for like something happens with one of your ACs or one of your furnaces. You have someone that goes out and deals with your properties and gives you a special discount for that. And that's that's where in real estate you have an advantage. If you've ever heard of like an economic moat for businesses and in real estate, it happens when you have relationships and you have access to capital. Those two things will give it to you. And you can do that on a smaller scale. Those have to be thousands of units. You can do that when you're like, oh, I hit 25 units. I can now have this managed for 6%. I know the guy buying it, this five unit next door, he's going to have to pay 8%. I can now sharpen my pencil a little more because I can pay a little bit more to get this property. And then all my expenses go down. Landscape guy is not going to charge me $30 like he's going to charge him. He'll charge me 25 because I have all these properties. And everything comes down in pricing with the more units you have.
1: Yes. Yeah, that's right. That's what I've heard is that the more units you have, the economies of scale goes up mm-hmm. and then it gets cheaper per unit to operate. There's an amazing book on this topic. It's What Every Real Estate Investor Needs to Know About Cash Flow and 36 mm-hmm. Other Key Financial Measures by Frank Galinelli, And I believe, yeah, that to be a really good book about breaking down everything we've talked about today. And there's so many ratios you can go into and you you can really get lost in the math. And we certainly don't want to make it complicated, but uh, across. And that that can be across storage units, single family, multifamily. Mm -hmm. And so making sure you know your numbers. But the the key ones we've talked about so far is... In, uh, I guess we haven't talked about cap rate, but that would be another key one. Uh, and then cash on cash return and, and just looking at your return overall, because that that's what it eventually comes down to. And then monitoring that market, like we've talked about mm-hmm. earlier in the show. So moving on from uh, actually analyzing potential real estate investment, what are some ways that we can increase the income once we have secured that real estate investment? Because It's something that a lot of uh, investors don't really talk about because they think, okay, I can get $800 of rent from this unit. And then that's the end of the story. But but there are creative ways that you can get out of your comfort zone and increase your rental properties, net income, because what it is all about at the end of the day is getting the net income, right? So any way we can increase rents or improve, then, uh, I mean, our payment's going to stay the same. So that is just extra profit
0: in our pockets, so what are yeah. some of those
1: ways that you have found to increase your rental property's net income?
0: So if we're buying and uh, you know, I, I hear it all the time and it kind of drives me a little crazy with certain people because they're like, I'm buying a unit, I'm buying this property, $800 a rent, and I'm going to renew it at a thousand because that's market. And you're like, well, that person is not staying. I mean, yeah. you know, that's great. You bought it under. That's why you're getting a deal. Now yeah. your goal is to get it up to market over so many years. And what's the biggest expense we all hate? is make ready having a rent to someone. This guy's person already is paying rent. Um, Instead of you increasing it uh, up to that, just rate bump it a little bit, maybe a little higher than what the market's increasing per year. And you'll catch up to that. Of course, when that person moves out, because at some point they will, then you can jump it all the way to market rate, do the work to the unit that's probably required to maximize its return. And that's all done on a per case basis. Because usually when you're buying properties, it's very rare that all the units are in the same condition. No matter, even on a three family house, um, they might be like, we've never touched the third floor the first one we went down to the studs on which has happened on a house that I bought before and so it's everything's different and you might say wow we're getting you know 900 a floor down here we're only getting 600 upstairs well go down here do the work to it get it to the 900 um, you know 900 a floor and you should know this in your budget going forward i think you know m- you minimizing expenses is always important and is, I, i'm I, li- I really like following expenses and trying to minimize them but really the most effective way that you're going to have it is by pushing income And you have to be a little bit more creative. Uh, There's not as many avenues to raising it when you're in smaller multifamily without all the amenities that can be added to it. Um, There's a lot of upsells, let's say, when you're in larger complexes with on-site management. So when you're getting 50 units plus, that's when you're going to get you know pool. In Florida, you'll get pools and stuff like that. Um, Maybe you need 100 plus units in other areas to have pools and stuff in there. But that's where you're having gyms. That's where you're having stuff like this. And you can renovate them and put in little tweaks and people will pay more for them. So there's more... Routes to getting to that higher income. When you're in, say, smaller multifamily, um, you know, two to ten units, something like this, you're not going to have all that stuff. So, what you're trying to do is, you know, first thing you do is, if you're planning on raising rents, you've purchased a property, start doing work around the property so they see you, they see your handyman on the property. Um, I usually like add a lot of lights onto the property; it makes it feel safe, and you can do little things like this around the property, even if your property is pretty much turnkey. As you start raising rents, you don't want to just buy a property and say, Hey, you're month to month, you have to sign a new lease and your rent's going from 800 to 900. You know what I mean? Um, You might want to go in there and say, Hey, we're doing some work here, this, that. It's going to renew for 825, da, da, da. And you can keep the person in there. You're going to talk to the old landlord too. I mean, you're going to be doing an inspection on this property. You're going to be talking to the tenants. I mean, you may, you know, you can, you'll understand what their whole attitude is. Ask them what happened with the, what's wrong with the property. You know what I mean? Are you going to stay? Are you going to renew? Do you like the neighborhood? Do you like the tenants? You know what I mean? And you'll have this two or three minutes in there where you can question them uh, very nicely and ask them what they like about what they don't. And you'll see the people that are always, hey, this is, hey, uh, my blinds need to be cleaned, or I have a blind that's broken, or this is something, small issues, like, oh, this might be like a headache tenant. So I'm probably not going to want to keep this person unless the landlord's like, this person's fine. You know what I mean? Um, So you're going to be doing your own due diligence while you're doing an inspection, not just on the asset, right, on the property. You're going to be doing it also on the clients, the tenants. and. That will give you an idea. And we do it like in large multifamily, we call it like a lease audit. It's much more a scientific process as it sounds, right? Um, But it's really just we're reviewing leases. And with our property manager, we're going to read leases, which is extremely exciting. If you love that, uh, the book you just mentioned with all the financial formulas in it, you're going to love reading leases. And um, it's really just going through and finding out, um, really grading someone. A, B, C, D. Hopefully, you don't have any D's. Hopefully, it's A, B, C of how long someone's going to stay there and, um, you know, likelihood of are going to be a problem, likelihood you have to evict them, you know, all this type of things. And then you'll have an idea and you're like, oh, wow, you know, 80% of people are very good here. And I'm going to have 10% that uh, are going to be C, that who knows what's going to happen. And then I have 10%, which are like, you know, wild cards, no idea what's going to happen there. And it's just something you have to kind of keep in mind. So, when you're doing this, when you're figuring out this helps you with your underwriting, helps you with your projections. And it doesn't have to be a huge, you know, like a huge 12 tab Excel spreadsheet when you're for a small property. Right. But just say you have an idea and go tenant one is fantastic. Tenant two is going to be a problem. Tenant three is going to be leaving and I'm moving in there. So it's something that you have this idea of where you're going. I should put a little bit more money away because I don't know what's going to happen on floor two. And their property, their unit was kind of in tough shape. It was kind of a mess. Um, And these are the things that you'll know. And it's not something where I'm going to go back to the seller and be like, hey, give me a discount because your tenant number two is uh, terrible. Um, It's going to be something where I'm just going to to put more money aside. You know what I mean? Um, maybe if there's something that you found that was wrong, hey, this hot water heater is really on the fritz. I thought we could do something with it. Can you give me some sort of credit on it? Um, you know, whatever it is. And that's the stuff we usually do on the smaller stuff. When you're getting into larger properties, we call it like uh, renegotiating, which is really retrading. And um, that's something that we kind of frown around and we kind of know going in. that's why we have a huge kind of uh, additional, ex- uh, additional amount that we add on to our expenses because small stuff happens, um, but, you know, it adds up. And it could be anything where um, the person you're buying from didn't cancel dumpster or trash removal. That happened in our last place. So we had to pay this very expensive company another two months before we could get out of the contract, right? Because um, it needed a 60-day termination policy. Uh, or it was something else too, is that they had a warranty on the roof, but they never activated it. It was like three or $4,000. And you could transfer it once. So this is a good thing because now we can transfer it to who we sell it to. Bad thing though is we have to pay whatever it was, a few thousand bucks. So this is not something I'm going to go back to them and get mad at them because it's actually going to be a plus when we, when we, when we sell, right? But it's something that I have, somebody has to come up with it. So you have to have this. And I think when you're in your smaller properties, you can negotiate a little bit more. When you're getting to your larger properties, um, you don't want to be. You you don't really want to be doing that. You don't want to be going back and retraining, especially over small stuff. Maybe if you go back and you're like, listen, uh, there's 15 roofs at this property and we thought we only had to do six of them and now we're gonna have to do nine. Well, that's a different thing. But um, you know, you just don't want to be like, hey, you know, it's two, three thousand dollars off and we'll make the deal. You know what I mean? When you're getting into huge deals. So
1: sure. Yeah. No, I love how you mentioned the lease audit and really knowing what's going on in your units. And yeah, it it probably easier. Is easier to negotiate when you have smaller buildings for sure. And even a single, in it, think of single family investing, um, just knowing how your tenants feel about the property, if they're Mm going to stay, leave, how they're liking it, that will leave you prepared so that you can, you know, get that unit filled or make some adjustments, make some repairs, whatever needs to be done there. So getting ahead of it for sure. Some other things that came to mind when I think of how do I increase my net income in the properties that I have? You know, I don't know if you allow pets, but it's been great for me to, you know, pet proof my investment, but also allow pets. It sets me above some other landlords that don't allow it and also increases my cash flow right to the bottom line because even without the pets, I know I'm cash flowing. So then the pets just uh, create more cash flow Um, and hopefully I will more than offset the additional repairs that are incurred because of that. Uh, Other things are just knowing when to refinance and when to not refinance. Mm -hmm. So we all know refinance helps you renegotiate loan terms. That can certainly help your bottom line. If you think about if you're going down an interest rate or going up in loan terms, that'll directly affect your cash flow and how much you profit from that property. Some other things are making sure you are charging market rent. Making sure if you get into a property and let's say it's under-rented, Then definitely jumping that up and that Mm -hmm. current tenant may leave. (laughs) They may not like that increase, but planning for that and making sure you're at least at market rent and then having the rehab level back that up Mm -hmm. so that you can charge market rent. So, those are all things that come to my mind when I think about you know, we don't want to just be landlords who are just charging, you know, bottom dollar rent. We want to be landlords who are charging the most that we can that is ethical and that gives somebody safe, affordable housing. But Let us profit the most off of it.
0: Yeah. Let me just add a couple of things. That's fantastic. A lot of great information there. Uh, Yeah. Perfect. You want to charge the market. We want to increase that. We want to renew leases. They know there's going to be when they renew leases, they know there's going to be an increase unless you're like in a COVID year, there's going to be an increase in rent. And they're, uh, they're looking for, not looking forward to it, but they're expecting it, let's say. Right. And so if you're paying for water, put a lot of water saving devices into the property. And that can be a shower heads like a dollar, right? If you buy a whole bunch of them, you can put yeah. them on there. Now, obviously, if someone goes and changes them, it, but let's say the majority of people aren't going to do that, right? Um, and you could like turn down water pressure, different places like underneath sinks, stuff like this, water saving faucets. Um, there's a number of ways of doing that. Uh, if you put hookups into a basement for washer and dryer, um, that's something that charge for that. You know what I mean? You can hook up your thing there, 25, 30 bucks a month for that coin operated washer and dryer and it's even valuable in three family properties. It's not money huge money makers, but I've bought them before used off of like um Craigslist, picked them up, threw them in the bot, had them plumbed, uh put, you know, it's already in the basement so your plumbing's already there. Bring your plumber in, has them throw them in there and now you're charging a little bit of money and uh most of that's going to be profit and that's going to be another and now they're not going to be doing tons of washes every uh every day and every week, but uh, it's something where they probably won't buy another one if they just have to go downstairs and do it. Um, I've, you know, when I've had those in properties that I've rented and been attended in, uh, I've never gone to like a laundromat or anything. So you just go downstairs and you can utilize it. It's very convenient, it's very nice. Um, so these are all different things that you can add on. Like you said, the pet fees, that's fantastic, especially if your property is ready for that. Um, that can be a little, you have to have a process and a system in place for how you're going to vet that pet. Yeah. And, um, that's going to be a little bit more difficult because every, every dog is fantastic when you hear from the pet uh, the owner. <laughs> and then the other thing too is know your insurance. Uh, I, I, when I used to rent people would call and be like, yeah, you know, I've got because it'd be like it's usually pit bulls and rottweilers. No one really wants. Maybe German shepherds, but it's usually pit bulls and rottweilers, and your insurance will not cover that. And um, they're very expensive. I didn't. I did an episode on my uh, my podcast about it, and it's like it's a huge litigation thing for lawyers. Huge income. So it's something that you've got to watch out for. And I've talked to people on the phone like. He's, he's a really friendly Rottweiler. I mean, you can play with him. Like my insurance company is not going to come out to the property and play with the dog. Like I just can't do it. It's <laughs> it's blacklisted by it. And it's just, you have to know it. And people will be on, you have to be upfront with them. You have to make sure that you're charging for that. If you see people bringing a, prop, a dog on or bringing their boyfriend onto the property and stuff like this, you just have to be proactive as a property manager. You can't just let, hey, now they've got a Chihuahua in there and now they've brought their boyfriend. in. Well, get an application on the boyfriend. Uh, find out, charge for the dog. You know what I mean. So we have to be a proactive landlord because little by little, uh, everybody talks in the property, and they're talking more than you're talking to them. So it's something that uh, they're going to know. Hey, he didn't say anything when I brought the dog in, or he didn't do well. If you say, hey, you know, you have to put down your foot. Make sure you're collecting all the different uh, late fees and stuff like this when they're required to be charged. Be fair and honest with your tenants, but also, you know, you got to put your foot down um, when there is a, uh, when there's something that's out of normal. Like, hey, you know, you call me if there's a problem and I'll come over and fix it. Right. But if it's, you know, when it comes to rent, when it comes to, there are things I, I expect it the same way. And um, usually when we're talking about like the water saving stuff and putting in like toilets and stuff like that, usually that stuff is less expensive than the nice stuff that uses a lot more water. So as being a conscientious landlord, when you're doing repairs and you use a cheap toilet or cheaper, less expensive toilet, they're usually going to spend less water. So it's usually a win-win when you're going through and kind of making the property. Now you're probably not going to do it right off the bat, but when there's an issue, when you're turning a unit, and you see a problem, you can then, you know, take it, work on it. And so that's why little by little, because the whole process takes years to get your property to how you really want it.
1: Yeah. Excellent. So yeah, just, just as a recap in this episode, you know, we've talked about how to analyze a potential investment in terms of your market and gather the data on that and then turning that into actual profits. So what we look for as far as uh, how to rent out, and how to manage that asset as it goes forward so it's been very educational for me and thank you for sharing your knowledge um for this last part of the show we're going to ask the same three questions we do to each guest this is called the triple threat and the first question is what is the app tool or resource that has been the biggest game changer in your business charles
0: Ah, uh, personally, I for it would be Trello. I use Trello every hour of the day that I'm awake for my personal stuff, and uh, Slack for Slack for uh, as I guess we're talking as a company.
1: Phenomenal, yeah. Those are two great tools for sure.
0: Question two: What has been the biggest learning lesson in the last year for you? Learning lesson is that you know I think real estate just changes very slowly, and uh, you're worried about your market changing, but it takes a while for that to happen, and by the time so if you're thinking, Hey, it's going to be, it can be like the next day or it's not like the stock market. It's very different. When something happens, it takes months and months for sellers to get on board with that. and And if it go, if it's going the other way for buyers to get on board with that.
1: Yeah. Good point. Question three, this podcast is all about helping others achieve freedom with real estate investing, whether that's financial lifestyle or otherwise. So what does freedom
0: mean to you? Uh, freedom's ability of doing what I want when I want and being able to kind of really sculpt uh my schedule so that I can work and also uh I can work when I need to and when I'd like to. And I think having freedom the the older I get, I think freedom is more important than any other aspect. And that's why I love uh real estate and what it affords me.
1: Yes. That's the common answer I hear from each guest. <laughs> Great. Well, you've been a, a wealth of knowledge to us, Charles. Where can Listeners learn more about you and your work.
0: So, if uh, what I do is I do a free thirty-minute call for anybody that's interested in being an active investor and/or a passive investor, and I can give you a web uh, my web address. It's called uh, schedulecharles.com. and i will go directly to my webpage charlescrillo.com, to a page where you can set up a thirty-minute call with me at your convenience, and uh, yeah, we can talk about uh, kind of if you're interested in getting involved with real estate you're interested in growing your real estate, you're interested in taking it to the next level, or you're kind of don't know what how to start. And uh, we can talk to you on any level about that. It'll be one-on-one with me. And uh, hopefully I can point you in the right direction over that 30 minutes.
1: Awesome. That's scheduledcharles.com. Well, thank you, Charles. And I hope you have a great rest of your
0: weekend. Thank you so much. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you for listening to the Real Estate Investing for Freedom podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a review and tune in next week for the next episode.